And let me remind you that this work you are doing tonight is very, very important. And I will be thinking of you as I drink this. Here you go. Thank you, sweetheart. Fine Bordeaux. Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's dedicated Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined by Kate Rettebaum. Hello. And uh, in keeping with our theme of bringing back guests from the original run of episodes, we've got Matt Crooms. Hey. How you doing, Matt? I'm great. We we pledged last Not week. Really. No. <laughs> <laughs> we we made certain pledges last week, and I'm not gonna hold it fast to them because I'm not a big fan of rigidity, but there are, there is, there's a set of questions I have to ask you. Um, (laughs) So if, if you'll, if you'll indulge us, first of all, I guess my first general question would be, since we haven't gotten to sort of interrogate you about the new season at all, I guess generally, how are you feeling about these new episodes as compared to maybe whatever, whatever you'd built in your mind before watching? I think it's pretty wild that the show even calls itself Twin Peaks. I remember after about the third episode, I was up for like a few hours at night just thinking about how creepy the opening credit sequence is and how kind of devoted it is to all the signifiers. You know, like here we are in Waterfalls in the Red Room and Laura Palmer. And then we get this show, which is like Cooper in space and Cooper as this sort of like Rain Man, Mr. Hulo, wandering around Vegas. And the show in many ways looks and feels nothing like Twin Peaks. So I think it's sort of fascinating. Um, It's kind of posing this question, like, when is a thing no longer itself? You know, like, if you change all the parts, can this thing still really be called Twin Peaks? Um, And I think it's a pretty crazy avant-garde philosophical gesture. So I'm into it, for sure. In some ways, I think it's genius, you know? And then in other times, I feel like it's almost dipping into some sort of like Tim and Eric territory where it's almost like trolling Twin Peaks as a show. So the jury is a little bit left out. I feel like I'm kind of ready for Cooper to come out of his uh, um, lobotomized phase a little bit. And, And I have some other thoughts about things. Like one thing I don't love about the new show is the way it's sort of cross cuts between Twin Peaks and then these other locations like Vegas and Argentina and kind of just makes Twin Peaks one among many settings because I think the whole point about Twin Peaks is it's a place you have to sort of like enter and that it's a mystical sort of world and those qualities get sort of erased when it becomes one of many generic settings and maybe there are reasons for that but it's it's one of the things I'm not so crazy about Um, but I, I really can't believe how kind of far it's going I think the first Twin Peaks was so crazy for its time, you'd have to do something really avant-garde for it to be kind of pushing the boundaries in this age of television, and it's definitely doing that. So I'm pleased in that respect. The, I mean, the more specific question, and maybe I think this is going to be a good yardstick for future guests, is uh, how did you feel about Wally Brando? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know people were into that. I wasn't so into the into Wally Brando. Oh no, <laughs> no, that's the Tim and Ericiness, you know. That it's kind of it was a little lowbrow for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's funny because I I think we actually got our most Tim and Eric esque sequence yet 
in this episode from this week, but we'll, we'll get there. Which we'll one? get there. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Oh, okay. Um, okay. All right. <laughs> so those are some good, some good general thoughts. Um, your, your take on sort of how weird the show has to be to sort of keep pace kind of echoes something I said in our last episode of the one before this show seems to have the same relationship to normality or like the, the baseline of what you expect from, I guess now prestige TV versus what Twin Peaks was presenting from network TV in 1990, um, which is like really, which is really something. It says a lot about both the show and what's happened to television in the interim. I don't want to get too far ahead before I do what I normally don't remember until the very end of the show to do, which is to say, hey, if you're enjoying the show, uh, consider rating and or reviewing and or subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, any of the places that uh, you you enjoy us. Also consider streaming the new episodes when they show up on Goomba Stomp slash Sorted Cinema because it's nice to support the people who host us because, you know, I don't know if anyone out there has ever hosted a podcast before, but it takes up bandwidth, which uses money, which means it's nice to throw people a bone traffic wise. Anyway, just gotten that out of the way. So, yes, episode six, uh, the... Oh, wait, wait, Simon. If we were doing some of the questions, you have to do the final question. You have to ask do Matt. Do I? Do I have to? I think, okay. you, I think you got it. <laughs> all right. All right. Matt, Jacques Tati, yay or nay? Um, is, is there a Jacques Tati thing happening on the show? Well, this is the question. So we've Simon and I are on record saying that Tati drives us both a little nuts, even though we can sort of like say we maybe respect it a little bit, but it drives us crazy, uh, which got some people's ire up. And we we have now uh, had to sort of start deciding whether we are on board with this idea that the new coop is this kind of uh, direct reference to Tati or something. I, I don't think it is. I had the thought that it was. Yeah. With no prompting, with no anything, I was like clearly the episode where he goes to work and he's this sort of like overwhelmed by modernization, I thought was pretty Tati like. Yeah. Okay. And so, did that make you happy or sad? Um, neither. You know, it's just, it's just weird. I, I, I feel kind of, it's, it's not like an effective positive or negative. I want Coop back. I want matinee idol slick cooper i don't want this uh you know dustin hoffman rain man coop for the whole show <laughs> i think he'll go insane. i yeah. feel like he is kind of ruining the show a little bit you know but I, i'm trusting he's gonna he's gonna come back to his slick ways this is interesting there's we're, we're, we're gonna have lots to talk about here um all right but yes simon we're, you were about to open us on to some beginning question here go, go yeah episode six um so the I mean, again, I don't know if we want to consider these episode titles or or what, but the the Showtime logline for this episode is simply "Don't Die." Um, for for anyone who wants like very sort of oblique spoilers for the next six episodes, you can find and because so far all the titles have come from the dialogue, you can see the loglines for the next six episodes. I guess on the Showtime website. So you know, if you just want a taste and you're very impatient. So to get a little peek behind the curtain here, I know that Kate, you and I had a very brief chat right after we watched this on Sunday night and we were both like, hmm, yeah. we were both a little bit apprehensive, I think, about this episode. I don't know if it was all for the same reasons, but it seems like there was quite a bit of overlap. I think um, for no one who's ever done a podcast with the same person for a while before, you kind of develop a weird hive mind no matter how different you may be in any other respect you you kind of start (laughs) you kind of start to form similar opinions at the same time i found that we we did have sort of um 
we reeled from certain aspects of the episode. Uh, and then similarly, uh, after a few days to think about it and maybe, I don't know, Kate, if your, if your evolution had to do with reading other people's mm-hmm. thoughts or not, for me it did, I sort of warmed to the episode a little bit. It's still not my favorite of the six that have aired, but there's there's definitely a lot to like and a few things I'm still sort of stroking my chin about. Yeah, I mean, it's I wouldn't necessarily say it's my favorite, but I I would say it's definitely gone from from maybe bottom of the pile to closer to the to the top. Uh, I I I don't know. I mean, I, for me, it was less reading other people writing about the episode, although that was a little bit of it, and more just rewatching the episode. Um, I think one of the things that occurred to me on rewatching it is that I actually think watching Lynch things the first time may be the worst way to watch them. And like that that might happen across the board. Like I, I kind of think Lynch's stuff, he's he's very unconcerned about maybe your sort of pleasure watching things the first time around. And so a lot of what he's actually doing doesn't really reveal itself until later because you can be so sort of unhappy through some of the experience watching it. And I think to a certain extent, that's what's going on with the um, Dougie stuff that I, I think I think Lynch is like thoroughly enjoying that those sequences. I quite enjoy them. I'm not really of the camp yet where I'm being driven insane by Dougie. I do understand why it is bothering other people. Um, for me, I get such joy out of those scenes that I, I'm less concerned about how much sort of narrative space it's taking up. Um, but that's only sort of one example. This episode was, and, and I think lots of people had this reaction. This, this episode is very violent and like very shocking. And I think, uh, it's, I don't know, it comes to you as an audience member here differently than it maybe did in the original series where the violence was something that we sort of built up to slowly after this like long seduction by the town here. It's like, we're still not really sure what exactly is going on and what world we're in. And it's like, and then all of a sudden we have this sort of horrible one, two punch with the um, car accident scene and then the woman being stabbed. And it's, it was a lot. And I, and I, and I don't think I was able to like incorporate all of it on first watching and it felt very cruel Going back to it the second time, a lot of that cruelty has faded away, and what what I've found watching it the second time was a much more melancholic experience. For me, the episode actually reminds me quite a bit of of elements of Lonely Souls, uh, the aspect of the the episode of the original run where. Uh, Leland kills Maddie and you have the long scene at the roadhouse and we can dig into why that is but I've come around to it I also think there's some really fascinating things going on in this episode formally that I hadn't picked up on the first time and we'll talk about those but I, I've been convinced how about you Matt how was your how was your first watch I, I I loathed at all the violence I thought it was so over the top so <laughs> yeah I was, I was crying laughing uh I mean, there's no way it can be taken seriously. I mean, I, I felt like the kid getting mowed over by the Mack truck was totally almost played for gags. And also, you know, it was juvenile, the scene of the woman. You know, of course, he has a little person run in with whatever the hell that was. And, and you know, it's, it's so arbitrary. I don't really see how you could make the link to the, to the Lost Souls Maddie sequence, which has such narrative investment at that point. Like, we care so deeply about these characters these seem like uh, stunts a little bit. No, I agree. I actually think that's part of why they're so difficult to deal with is because they walk that line between almost humorous and and not. And and yet they're still awful. Like that's the scene is like that that sequence when 
the character's name is Ike the Spike, uh, this small person who runs into the office with the ice pick in his hand. And the image makes you want to laugh because it's so incongruous. Like, it's not what you're expecting. It's not because I can't handle it. It's because it's juvenile. You know, it's, it's um, sophomoric a little bit. No, no, I, I get that. But for me, like the, the shockingness of it is that you go from that to this extreme close up of the woman being like brutally stabbed and her like spitting blood up into the camera. I mean, those are it's again, it's like that classic rapid shift from the weird humor to the darkness. That's actually pretty characteristic of the show. But anyway, I mean, the thing that everyone has said to me about the show is that it's too misogynistic. And I'm sure this has come up and you've talked about this, but. You know, I, I just had an interview with three other female candidates, and they all said they couldn't watch the show because it's too misogynistic. And, and friends that I know on Facebook, they're like, why are all the female characters dying in the first five minutes? And I'm curious to see what you think about this, because I can remember when True Detective was on, you were, <laughs> you were there on Facebook writing these manifestos about the underdeveloped female characters. And I mean... Who are the redeeming female characters on this show right now? I mean, Naomi Watts' character almost seems like a type. Uh, half the female characters get introduced, get like beheaded or their heads blown off within like five minutes of being on the show. Um, and so now here, here we watch this woman get brutally, you know, uh, stabbed to death with, with the, by Ike the Spike. Um, what, what's, your, what's your response to this? Well, I... I recall that discussion perfectly when we were talking about uh, True Detective. And A, the first most obvious difference is that True Detective sucked and Twin Peaks doesn't. Uh, no, I'm joking. But um, the, the, I mean, realistically for me, like that's where some of that discourse breaks down about saying things like we need strong female characters or we need like empowering or redeeming female characters. I mean, that was not actually what I said about True Detective. What I said about True Detective was, I don't think you need those characters. What you need is some sense that the kind of forces and intelligence behind the show are approaching these problems with intelligence and with a kind of awareness. Like, there needs to be some formal elements of the show that give you an indication that they are approaching it in a sense where they're at least interested in these problems and they are trying to deal with them and they're putting them before you, right? I mean, this is this always constant problematic around whether a show that indulges in things like violence against women is simply reiterating those or whether it is putting bef putting it before you to draw attention to it as a problematic force. For, for me, Lynch is very much in the second camp. I, I think that there is more than enough kind of going on both here and in his sort of larger body of work that it isn't, it, for me, it is just way too simple to be like it's misogynistic because women are being killed. For me, the fact that the women are being killed and that, again, they are primarily the objects of violence in the show, although we have had uh, violence ex uh, against male characters, the sequence where the guy gets beat up in the casino is pretty brutal as well. And I find it interesting that people haven't commented on that one nearly as much as they've commented on the women. But anyway, for me, like, I, I really believe that Lynch is quite unabashed about making this stuff, like, one of the primary focuses of a show like Twin Peaks, because, again, it's part of this larger formal move about reflecting back what television does, like, reflecting back these sort of larger landscapes of television, and particularly now, quote, quality television. And, uh, and, and Matt, you probably haven't heard us talk about this, but we know for a fact that Lynch watched True Detective. And, like, there, there is... I think for me, it's there is an element of commentary here that is different than it's sort of simply being a reiteration. And I and again, I think that if I think Lynch wants this to be uncomfortable, I think Lynch wants it to read as a certain form of misogyny. I, I don't think it's meant to be 
comfortable television in any stretch. Well, I mean, it's not about positive characters or positive representation, but it's about how subject-object relationships are created, how we identify with the show, with male and female characters. And I mean, what kind of complex relationships do we engage with in women at all? Like you're saying, well, there's this guiding intelligence uh, that, that's sort of leading us through the process so we can rest assured that it's totally okay that women are just getting butchered left and right. But I, you know, I pose the question to you, I mean, what assurances do we have? What evidence do we have that there is any kind of intelligent treatment of gender relations going on at all? I mean, you know, my partner tomorrow was watching it and she's like, okay, well, we have the FBI agent is a model. You know, every, every woman is put there to be looked at or to be killed. And we don't have a single female character with any kind of complexity or interiority. And, you know, I was trying to come back and say, well, I feel like it's obviously referencing the history of film noir and the femme fatale and all of these kinds of all of these conventions. But it's hard to actually then be like, well, here, here's why this representation of violence is fine because what do we what do we say other than that it's lynch you know which is what you're saying like i trust in lynch i don't trust in other lesser known directors right on like a like a pure fact level i mean and i i think if people are experiencing these issues they shouldn't be discounted you know we've had the return of shelly and norma who are characters we already know mm -hmm. um who have this you know really rich relationship that they're they've tapped into a little bit and i assume they will continue to um, we, and I would also point out the character, uh, played by Jane Adams, who's sort of been able to have a little bit of an inner life that's separate from everything else that's going on. Uh, also the sheriff's wife, also Doris Truman, I think deserves a shout out there. I would push back against the idea of the Naomi Watts character, Janie, with her absurd <laughs> name, um, just as some sort of type, if only because Naomi Watts is giving this like bravura comic performance that... I think absolutely lifts those sequences above like what could have been just, you know, pablum, I guess. Um, but, you know, I'm saying people, people are putting these criticisms forward, right? Like what is the response right. to say other than that Lynch is a guiding and we have to just trust in Lynch because, you know, right. Lynch can be an idiot savant at times. Lynch was the guy who brought out this person at a meditation retreat who turned out to be a Nazi and was giving, yeah. you know, and then Lynch was there like, I don't know what's going on. You know, like Lynch is not always in control of these things. Right? Thank you for giving us our so, weekly I mean, Lynch impression. <laughs> I, I, I'm just asking, you know, because everyone is putting this criticism forward to me. And then I, you know, I say things like, well, I think he's all of the things you're saying. He's. He's making his question the representation of, of, of violence and this this moment. Of, but these are not strong enough comebacks. Yeah, I feel and, like. I, well, and I think that's yeah. I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, if people want to, this is something I sort of wrote about right before the the season premiere that you know Twin Peaks was debuting in this very different critical and cultural moment um, where it's not just the fact that TVs evolved; it's the fact that these sort of like these issues of social justice are much more prominent in mm -hmm. the critical mm -hmm. and pop cultural discussion. And as much as I am leery of critics and viewers who judge things primarily based on those terms, or in some cases only based on those terms, I can, it would be, you know, cruel of me to just dismiss those concerns outright or just to say, Oh, well it's Lynch. So it's fine. Or like, 
you know, it's going to get better. Although, you know, I, I do, I, I have a reason to believe that with the arrival of Diane, which is obviously yeah. something we have to talk about. Um, and you know, with the, with, you know, at some point, Audrey is going to show up as well. Like that's just going to happen. And I think in a fairly major way, and I think at that point, the scales will tip somewhat. Maybe this is kind of an, an unrelated point, but when you say like, oh, these characters are going to show up, I mean, they're not themselves anymore. This is not Twin Peaks anymore. When we have Norma and Shelley at the diner, uh, I don't for a minute believe that that's Norma and Shelley anymore. These are these weird emptied out simulacra of, uh, simulacra of these characters. You know, This is the whole thing. The show is obliterating the old Twin Peaks in a way, which is what I think makes it so ra- makes it radical. But if like Audrey comes back and these other characters come back, they're not going to be themselves mm-hmm. you know they're going to be something in this totally new universe and i feel like it's almost a macguffin it's almost like one they have the appearance of belonging to this old world but that old world is, is totally gone mm-hmm. right and this is a different this is a different issue i guess than than from from the criticism what if that few seconds we got of james is the only time we see james I think that might be it with him, actually. I, I kind of think that. Um, but here, but let me add a couple of points to this whole thing. So, A, because I feel the need to like point out that I, I really don't think my defense of this can be boiled down to just saying we should just trust Lynch. I mean, we've, we've done now like two uh, podcast episodes where we go through all of this in detail. Uh, we talk actually pretty consistently, Matt, about the gender question, um, particularly around the stuff with... Uh, the Tammy Preston FBI agent character, which is deeply problematic. Uh, we talk about it a lot. I think that it's, I mean, Tamara is av- absolutely right. I hated that stuff. I, I'm still not crazy about it. I think it's really gross. I do think that there's something, there's a question there as to whether there is some self-criticism or not. Um, but my main point that I would want to add is just that, again, we've only watched like the first third of the film. It would be like watching the first third of Fire Walk With Me and then saying, well, it's, all, it's only this, it's only that. It's like we have to watch all of it before there can be any kind of final judgment about what is going on there. Yeah, that's, that, that's what I say to everyone that I mean, even if you think about Mulholland Drive, and I think the show seems way more modeled on something like Mulholland Drive or even Inland Empire than it does Twin Peaks. I mean, you remember there are these set pieces at the beginning of those films where we don't even get into the action until later and you feel like there is this gravitational pull happening toward Twin Peaks and probably not by episode 12 are we going to like get there so I I totally agree with that I just feel like you know when you say there's self-criticism I I just wonder like what specifically no I I know I I I can't give an answer to that what do you mean well, we've been trying, like Simon and I last week sort of talked about this question as to whether some of the other representations around how like things are, like the Ernie Hudson scene at the Pentagon with his kind of, um, the female subordinate woman who's like a, a I don't know what their jobs are, but that that, inter- that interchange between the two of them is so kind of straightforward that it ends up highlighting how ridiculous the stuff is with Cole and this woman in the previous episode. And like the, the stuff with um, Lynch reframing the camera to show this woman's butt as she walks away and, and like the external knowledge that Lynch and that woman are like, uh, have worked together for a long time on musical stuff. And he's kind of on the record being like, she's the most beautiful thing even though Lynch is currently married to another like young (laughs) woman Um, so there's all of this stuff there but I mean for me I'm waiting to see where that stuff goes because we have like commentary from other characters to Gordon Cole saying like we know your MO with women like all of this stuff there are hints that there is sort of a joke that's not a joke even but like an awareness on the part of the show even maybe it's Mark Frost awareness or something about Lynch's kind of tendency to gravitate towards young women whether it has worked or landed I'm not sure that 
that's true, but that's why I'm reserving judgment to see where that stuff goes. But there's so many good things in this episode that we should get to, but uh, go ahead, Simon. Well, yes, there were good things, um, but because of what was already brought up, I did want to sort of segue into a couple of my sort of general misgivings that mm. I, I haven't mentioned so far. And the big one is this notion of this new season as like an 18-hour movie, which is what which is how Lynch and Frost termed it from the beginning. This is not the first time that a season of television or a series in general has been pitched as a long movie, but it is one of the most literal times uh, that I, that I think it has, it's been posited in the sense that like, if you, if you removed those roadhouse musical sequences with the credits um, from the ends of, and it's been in the end of most episodes now, you can easily imagine these episodes re-edited as a long film in the same way that there were these sort of fan edits of um, a fire walk with me with the with the missing pieces yeah. reinserted and all that, I guess what I sort of mourn is, you know, I, if they, if they if they want to do a, an eighteen hour movie, that's obviously valid, and you know, Bellatar will clap very slowly in the corner. I mean, I guess I, what I'm missing out on is one of the one of the advancements I think of of the form of television in the last little while when done right is this blend of long form storytelling with mm-hmm. you know taking advantage of the fact that you have this smaller canvas um this you know this limited you know 40 to 60 minute window depending on whether your particular network or provider has commercial breaks F- finding ways to sort of work on both levels when done properly as i think we've seen on stuff like the leftovers and sometimes madman and things like that um can really be a beautiful thing to witness and i th- I I'm I sort of I think that the people who are going to come to this later and get to watch all 18 hours at once are sort of at an advantage because it doesn't feel as though for the most part Lynch and Frost are interested in working on both levels at once which I think is sort of a missed opportunity. Yeah, I I mean I think I'm not sure Lynch ever really worked that way. I I think there's sort of a backwards-looking view of the old series where it appears that he almost could have because he was so absent from the series mostly, and then he would come in for these, like, you know, just hitting them out of the park, like, one-off episodes that, that, that did work so perfectly as a kind of standalone episode with, like, Lonely Souls being maybe the best example. Um, but if you look at the one-two punch that opened season two of Twin Peaks, which is the first 90-minute episode and then a regular-length episode, so three hours effectively directed by Lynch, the way that the pace and everything works there and the way that he just sort of doesn't clearly does not care about things like anything not even act structures because i know what you're saying like you're not saying simon that they should have act structures that's not it it's more this sort of like internal consistency or like thematic consistency or something that gives it its punch within this sort of limited space and lynch is like i just don't think he ever operated that way i mean i I, for him i think the fascination with television has always actually been purely the long form has been like purely the the idea that you could have a story that doesn't need to end like that doesn't need to be kind of like trimmed down at all um and, and again, for me, it works, but I will say that it, I feel like the way Lynch approaches these hour long episodes does require that you watch the whole episode and then kind of go back and watch it again. Because I, I would say that the lack of the structure stuff and the lack of the internal consistency maybe adds to these difficulties sometimes of like watching it and you're just like, oh, okay, we've been in one sort of 30 minute sequence and now we're, there's five like two minute sequences and then there's the end credits and it's like, what's happened? So it, it, it takes, you need to have an overview in order to, uh, to get at the, what the individual bits are doing. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think that the illusion of if it, if it was an illusion, which I think you're partially correct. It was, 
of sort of structure and TV-ness to the original Peaks was also because, of course, you had, you know, this whole set of writers and directors and it sort of had to exist in these discrete chunks and it had, you know, commercial breaks. And although it is interesting that this episode does feature fades to black where you can imagine a commercial break happening, which <laughs> is the first time I noticed that in these episodes. But um, I don't know. I, I, I guess to my mind, I do just sometimes wonder if they were so intent on making an 18-hour movie you know, why not just, you know, why did they not go to Netflix with it? Why did they not go somewhere where they knew that it was going to be released in one massive hall at once? Um, and maybe the, maybe the simple answer is Showtime gave them the money. I'm, these are the questions that I have at the, at the th- almost third way mark. I mean, no, I think it's, I think it's a very deliberate choice. The Lynch wants it coming out once a week. I mean, I, I actually don't think the two are mutually exclusive, like saying that this should be thought of as an 18 hour movie while Lynch totally also reserving the right to say, but you're only going to get to see it one hour a week <laughs> for 18 weeks. I mean, I actually think there's something interesting going on there, but, um, I, but I don't know, Matt, how, how are you finding all that stuff? No, I mean, I agree for the most part. I mean, it's, it's nothing brilliant to say, but the first, um, two seasons, I guess, had such a strong, strong, strong narrative drive, you know, that that could always sort of carry from from week to week. And it also accentuated moments of excess, which seems so excessive. You know, this does not have that. It doesn't have a strong, what is the, what's the mystery other than what the show itself, it doesn't have, it's not a police procedural. And it makes these allusions towards the procedural at times, but then they're sort of clouded in the introduction of new characters that, yeah, I, I maybe agree that if you could watch the whole thing at once, it might cohere a little bit better. But again, it's just taking such radical chances that I'm I'm willing to go along for the ride. You know, when you have Coop in that weird industrial room with a woman with no eyes, I think that was that supposed yeah. to be Ronette Polanski. Uh, Pulaski, it, it was, yeah, it was right. her. Yeah. I mean... I mean, when when the, that's just not something normal for television. It almost makes the leftovers look kind of like soft. You know, yeah. like this is like Stan Brakhage on TV or something. So, because he's taking such massive chances, I think I'm willing willing to go along. You know, I'm not sure how much longer I want to go with the Dougie, um, Janie E narrative. I feel like I want them to wiggle out of that a little bit. That's sort of interesting that that maybe it's not fully taking advantage of something televisual of the of the one hour format that it is that maybe he is. But then is that true of Lynch? Is he thinking of the long picture? Because I think of Lynch as someone who behaves instinctively and just kind of like, oh, I had this idea. I had an idea to do this and then kind of follows the idea. Is there some sort of architecture to the whole thing? Is there an maybe there's an appearance of architecture? You know, are we going to find out what's going on in Vegas with I can't remember his name, the guy from Mulholland Drive, Drive. right, who's being controlled by these forces. I mean, is that going to resolve itself somehow? Uh, We should keep in mind, too, that, like, Mark Frost and Lynch wrote, you know, uh, a 400-page sort of screenplay or whatever it was for this. I mean, and and knowing Frost, there will be at least something of an architecture. I mean, I I don't – personally, I don't believe it's going to end in some kind of, like – 
closure of a mystery or where every single storyline that they set in motion is going to be wrapped up. In fact, I'm, I'm sure it won't be. I'm sure that we might get at best like 10% of these things sort of addressed. Uh, that is one thing that Lynch has like been pretty open about over the years is like his, he has no interest in sort of tying things up. And, and I actually think it's interesting because I've been re-listening to our old podcast episodes as we go through these new ones. And, um, one of the things that we talk about, uh, Simon and I with, I forget who, but somebody in, in those early episodes is, is basically our kind of ongoing sense in, in even season one that, that this is like, a this is an issue and th- something that sticks out in season one is this sense that, um, you're kind of expecting things to be dealt with. And instead what happens is that each week you're confronted more and more with scenes that simply seem to open up new storylines. Um, and I actually, I hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me how there is kind of a connection then with this new season and the old season in relation to that. Um, but there is really a sense, I think, in which even if we've lost the sort of soap operatic framework, uh, I do still think that Lynch and probably Frost to a certain extent are, are both kind of fascinated by this level that you could just sort of keep adding things to the story. Like for them, I don't think there is much of a sense that they feel like they need to be following kind of tight storylines or that once they've introduced something, they owe anything to the audience about going Mm -hmm. back to that and continuing to unpack it. And for me, that's almost as radical a move as anything that they're doing in the explicit, like formal stuff with the image and the sound is just this sort of complete disregard for certain narrative structures that if something is introduced, we're expecting to continue with it. I mean, I, a lot of these things, it's like an open question as to whether whether we'll ever see any of these characters again. I mean, remember Ashley Judd? Remember uh, Jennifer Jason Lee? Like, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't think they're interested in any of that, which I also think is why it does feel so important that to get to the end, because then you can see, like, the themes are not going to become clear until the end, because it's so difficult to tell what you're supposed to be focusing on and what you're not supposed to be focusing on, and, and you know, all of that kind of stuff. I just realized that if you think about narrative progression as like a straight line, then what Dougie is drawing on those insurance forms is actually quite prophetic because it's like two steps forward, two steps sideways, <laughs> two steps forward, two steps sideways. It's true. If you never saw James again, if you never uh, see uh, Jennifer Jason Lee again, that, that would be kind of cool, I guess too, you know, but I, but I mean, there's no doubt if that's what the show is doing, it's uh, kind of just, just destroying the old TV show. And I think it, I think it's a radical gesture. It's not it's not a critique, you know. But it, and it seems to me something that's much more radical than say Gus Van Sant remaking Psycho, and it's like a shot for shot. Oh, but now there's Green, and is is this Psycho or isn't it Psycho? This is Twin Peaks. Okay, it's made by the same people who made Twin yeah. Peaks. It's called Twin Peaks, and yet it's kind of destroying Twin Peaks. On the other hand, I mean, you know, when there was that scene in this episode at the at the uh, at the diner, the Double R Diner. I felt like it was almost just kind of absurd to have these actresses in this context at all. You know, like they're not these characters. At the time, they were embedded in such a clear diegetic universe. Now they're in this sort of just just chaos. And to have them sort of speaking this way and, and, and be embedded in these narrative roles, it's like it doesn't really make sense. It's like when we see um, Bobby in the scene from a few episodes ago and he sort of cries at seeing Laura Palmer's uh, photograph. Like that belongs to a different universe that doesn't make sense in the show we're watching. And I, I don't know. I feel like there's, again, this is what this seems to me that the show's most radical gesture, that it's like alluding to this thing when it's in fact possibly not interested in it at all, you know? And this sort of connects to my biggest question about the show right now, which is like, how seriously does it want us to take stuff? I think it's sort of my, 
yeah. my, my biggest question. Like, on one hand, the sequence with that kid just getting flattened um, <laughs> right. is that that is the sequence that I'm referring to when I talk about Tim and Eric. Like, there's a specific season of Tim and Eric Awesome Show, Great Job, exclamation mm-hmm. mark, where in every single episode they get violently killed. Uh, one way or another, um, I don't. I don't know whether it was that same season, but there's a specific episode about that's all about crows. Um, which, in which, oh yeah, they get their eyes pecked out by the crows. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert. And that whole season just plays with these sort of like ridiculous digital effects and these sort of like grand guignol deaths and sort of you know it really goes over the top in that way. And and that sequence is such it's so bizarre because and i i now refer to the sequence in the show because on one hand um obviously we have the return of harry dean stanton who is mother 91 and like is he is he actually 91 because when he said he was smoking for 75 years i thought he can't it can't be true he or actually is, it is. has i can almost guarantee that that was straight out of the book of harry dean stanton harry dean stanton it, throughout the episode and specifically in that sequence is like really effective but then he and the woman and her dead son are surrounded by these actors right. who are just awful. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're like bottom, like, sorry if, if y'all are listening and you're hoping for your big break to come out of the show, but like, it's not good extracting at all. Um, no, and but I, yeah, I feel like I, I definitely noticed that. And I feel like, but doesn't that always exist in the sort of Lynch universe? These yeah. Are, like, like Blue Velvet, you know, the, 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 the fireman waving. Like, isn't that always kind of, I was, I was trying to wrestle, I was wrestling with this a bit myself. Like the acting is, is just, just manifestly bad, but is that redeemable somehow? Is it intentional or is it just funny? Well, this is what I'm, this is what I'm wrestling with. And, you know, something that, that, <laughs> that Kate and I have discussed time and time again it's especially in the context of, of Twin Peaks and doubly so in the context of Fire Walk with me, you know, this is a this has always been a series or a universe where death matters and yeah. it's treated with with weight and seriousness. And then if we're gonna start to have sequences like this one where on one hand it seems to be treated with weight and seriousness, and on the other, you know, you've got these onlookers like from the bottom of central casting. And then, you know, also we have that ludicrous ice pick murder sequence set to yes. um, what is supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, if you do a search on YouTube for old school hip hop beat, that that is literally what you hear in this episode. That's the generic old school hip hop beat. Yeah, that... it's literally the first result on YouTube. I'm, I, it's again, a pretty bad beat, yeah. I, and which is, like I, again, not a, what feels to me to be a serious minded sequence. So. Are they deliberate? Is are Lynch and Frost deliberately sort of counteracting their 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 prior sort of relationship to violence in order to establish that this is a new world where, as you mentioned, we're sort of geographically straying out of Twin Peaks? Um, I know that I don't know exactly where this um, trailer park that Harry Dean Stanton lives in is meant to be located. I know that it's been relocated. It's 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 the new trailer park. Um, I don't know whether it's actually supposed to be in sort of Twin Peaks city limits or not. But are they trying to establish that, yes, Twin Peaks is a place where death is taken seriously, but everywhere else it's kind of an open question? I don't know. But these are the things that I'm personally wrestling with. Okay, so I have like a million things to say about all of this, but I'll, I'll try to keep it organized. Um, I mean, so for the, the car accident scene and this question of like whether or not Lynch and Frost are sort of trying to maintain this relationship where death is taken seriously, um, 
for me, and I, and I wanted to explain this because I mentioned it in the, at the beginning, but then I forgot to come back to it. So for me, this is why that car accident sequence functions like Lonely Souls. And I, and I wouldn't say that this whole episode functions like Lonely Souls. Uh, not, it's a different question when you get to the stabbing sequence. But the car accident scene for me is very much in that register because it's, it's operating on, on both sides. Like, it's not that if you think it's funny or that there are elements of it that are a little weird that that somehow crosses out the um, the sort of pain and horror of it. It, it heightens it. it. I don't think that they need to exist in the sense of them crossing each other out. Like, again, I've, I've already quoted this on the podcast, but this is uh, Dennis Lim's point about Lynch, which is that, you know, irony in Lynch, he, he can do it in such a way that it doesn't cancel out sincerity. And for me, it's like here... Lynch's best moments, like the most emotional moments, are the ones that cross the closest to silliness a lot of the time. And like that, that has been a kind of constant theme in the television show always. And here you have this long sequence with the little boy and the mother, you know, hopping. And, and it's so kind of like cute and, and from this sort of very old sort of space, like, you know, and, and you see the car coming up, right? I mean, the Richard Horn character, you get this long buildup with them hopping and the car coming. And there is a weird sense in which, like, you know, you could imagine them doing that scene very differently, which is the kid just sort of hopping up and then it, you see it too late that he's been hit. But instead you have all of this sort of sense of portent as the guy drives up to the uh, thing, you know, it's going to happen. And, and you're, I was expecting the camera to cut away, right? Like I was expecting to not actually see the violence. And there is a sense in which you, you watch that little boy get mowed over and it's so... It's so upsetting that I, anyway, I, I don't know, know exactly what to say about that, but this question of like the, um, the funniness versus the sort of lack of seriousness around death. For me, I think that scene takes death as seriously as anything else in the show. And the reason why I think, in the history of the show even, and the reason why I think that is because... Come on, no way, no yes, way. Yes, it no does. Way. Let me explain. So the little boy is killed, and you have a long sequence afterwards with uh, Carl, this character that people who have watched Fire Walk with me are very attached to. Um, like, he, he stands there and he watches, presumably, the little boy's soul go up to heaven or something. It's a bit unclear. Um, watches this happen and walks over to the mother. And in a gesture, like, everyone else is sort of looking around. And for me, this is exactly what he's doing here are very clear references to Lonely Souls. Because in Lonely Souls, while Leland is killing Maddie, you cut back repeatedly to the roadhouse where characters are sitting around who've been put in this kind of spectatorial position and they're all weeping. And like, they know that something bad is happening, but they can't do anything about it. And so they sit there and weep and they're in this sort of position that mirrors us as the spectator. And this is exactly the same thing with these sort of people. Personally, I have to admit, I didn't pick up at all on this idea of them being bad actors. I, di I didn't notice that at all. And maybe that's that I was like sort of very caught up in the scene or something. I didn't pick up on it anyway. So they're all sort of there reflecting back this sort of space of like the spectatorial position. And yet this character of Carl like crosses that and goes over to the mother and looks at her. And it's, it's almost exactly the same gesture of uh, what the, the, that the waiter makes to Cooper in the roadhouse when he walks up to him and he says, I think at first he says, I'm sorry. And then he doesn't say anything. And he just looks at him and he pats him on the back. And I mean, for me, the music in that sequence, for, so we should also point out that that sequence is the first time that we've gotten a new extended Battle Lamenti score. Uh, it's, re it's really beautiful music. For me, this is like a, a, a moment that I found it very affecting the second time. I will say, Matt, the first time I, I didn't. The first time I just didn't know what to do with it. So I, for me, I didn't, I didn't have this experience until I watched it the second time. So maybe that's sort of the difference here. But I think it's a very 
affecting scene. And I, I also think watching it the second time, it ties much more into a kind of like emotional flow of the episode that works with the Sharon Van Etten song at the end. First time I watched it, the Sharon Van Etten song just felt very tacked on. But the second time around, it felt very much more of a piece. Anyway, so that's my thing about that. You know, there's a scene in Lodge Door where, you know, a small child is like blown away from a rooftop with a shotgun. And I also remember at the time I was the only person in the classroom who like laughed at that gesture. But it's like there's something about children and and kind of the way they they're represented in culture where it sort of like has to be taken seriously and i can't help but feel like there's some sort of surrealist gesture in having a small child mowed over by a mack truck in this way that to me seems totally totally played for laughs in a way totally meant to transgress a certain kind of boundary around what's representable and what's not i feel like the maddie murder in twin peaks is shot differently it has a completely different different stake in the narrative at that point. It's enduring, right? It goes on. It's protracted. It goes on for like five to ten minutes. Yeah, it's I'm not saying those are the same. This, yeah, no. this seems to me like almost like the punchline of a joke. We get the kid. He set up. He has no interiority. He's this prop, basically, to get mowed over by this Mack truck. And like, I, I just feel like it's Lynch playing with. I, I think you're probably right, actually, that he wants us to take it seriously and think about it within this this kind of broader cosmos of the show. But for me, it just didn't it wasn't effective that way. I guess. Yeah. Hey, hey, Matt, I got a quick question. Um, do you have any children? <laughs> no, admittedly, I don't. <laughs> just checking. I think I still would have laughed even if I did, and it was handled because it's about the way it's handled, right? No, no, I, mean, I, I understand. A reasonable adults can differ on this question. Simon, were you melancholy when this scene happened? Were you like, "Oh my god, this is so, this is traumatizing, so dark," or were you laughing it up? But... Having not had time for a rewatch as Kate did, I think I was just confounded by the sequence. Um, again, I, I think sort of reading other people's reactions to it and having other people pick up on things like. And even noticing, for instance, that it's the same intersection where yeah. um, where Philip yells at uh, at Ray Wise and Fire Walk with me. Again, I'm not sure what that does for the sequence, uh, other than act as sort of a, a geographical reference point. It's it's so kitschy though. It's so campy. But so are the good affects in the Lynch world. I mean, and this is the thing for me is like good affect. I think in Lynch, you kind of have to be willing to to take it as a, as camp. I mean, I, I don't think campiness in Lynch automatically means that you should be taking an ironic view on it. But that being said, I think it's perfectly, I think it, it's built into what he does that both are going to be there. Like they, that you're, it's perfectly reasonable that you'd be reacting with laughter and I would be reacting with tears. I mean, I, I think this is like quite common. Like I, I wanted to um, point out as well, like in relation to the kind of old show, this idea that, whether or not death is being taken seriously here because it is being surrounded by things that are funny. This is something that's been in the show since the pilot. I mean, in the pilot, you have things like a cut from a train car where people are talking about how two girls were like brutally beaten and raped and one of them was murdered and it's covered in blood and there's like bloody rags and you cut from that or maybe it's vice versa. I can't remember now, but you cut to like Coop talking about chocolate bunnies or you cut to like another like you know, this, these rapid shifts and not even shifts sometimes just like overlay of kind of humor, right? Sarah, Sarah Palmer's tears. 
your own effective reaction to them determines whether mm-hmm. or not you find them devastating or whether or not you find them funny. I mean, this is this is the fabric of the show. Like, I, I think I've said this before, but this is maybe one of the more consistent, maybe one of the only consistent elements with the old show is this like sort of total, uh, yeah, mixing it up of these kinds of affects all the time. Yeah, but that seemed that seemed organized differently, though. The the the, the sort of you know, it was a very careful balancing act between kind of really morbid horror and then just sort of levity and light humor. I don't really feel the same balance in the show between kind of humor and, and horror. I just feel like, I feel like the show's still kind of figuring itself out almost. I kind of agree with that in the sense that I feel like the ingredients are the same, but the proportions and, you know, the, the delivery method is just not, I'm mixing my metaphor here, but like, it just feels it's like yeah the same basic elements are there but the uh, the intensity and the velocity is different there are so many aspects of this episode that we haven't even mentioned yet maybe we should talk about i mean Dougie does still get the lion's share of this episode i know that this question of um when do we get to the cooper fireworks factory is very much uh that's very much the most popular point of discussion of like how much how long is 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 Dougie gonna is Cooper gonna be Dougie? Or I mean, or really, Dougie is gone. Cooper is just Cooper, but he's just not all there. Um, the no one seems to notice that. No one ever seems to pull Dougie aside and just be like, "What's going on?" Which I guess is part of the pretense of the show, right? <laughs> That's a Tati esque thing. Yeah, yeah I, I I guess I can begrudgingly see that. Um, the I guess, but this was the first week where I thought to myself, you know. And if there weren't like certain things that make that like certain specific aspects of production that made me think this won't be the case, which I won't get into, I just had I had the thought of you know, if Lynch and Frost felt like it, they could wait until the very last shot of this new season to bring Cooper back if they felt like it, and I would still watch the whole thing. Oh yeah, so would I. But then wouldn't you have to admit that it's doing some real violence to... Oh, hell yeah. You know, maybe not, not the show, but people's expectations of the show, at least. I think for us, like we've we've sort of made the point that um, the, the way in which th- this show is treating viewers' expectations around what they might have wanted from the old show is is very much like a political move, right? I mean, there's and, and I, like I kind of figured you might even have already wanted to talk about this, Matt, but it's just this idea that this emptying out of the specialness of Twin Peaks. I mean, there is like a very literal and direct commentary on kind of neoliberal like flows of of goods and movements and stuff. Like it now, is that this idea that there is no such thing as small town specialness in the United States anymore. And that's not really true. I mean, for anyone who's driven through like South Dakota, like small towns are still weird in the United States. I've been there. I can attest to this, but there is a real sense in which like neoliberalism is kind of pushing against that. And for me, that is part of what is going on with this move towards making Twin Peaks just another space among, uh, among others. And the sense that even if there are things in sort of pockets of this kind of old specialness within the town of Twin Peaks um, that have just become more heightened and weird, like Lucy and Andy and all of this stuff, there is a very clear sense in which like the crappiness of the world has infiltrated that town and not necessarily in the way that it used to be, which was this sort of like mystical, like uh, evil in the woods. Now it's like a really shitty dirtbag sheriff who's just awful to people like and is horrible, you know, like like this kind of stuff. I mean, or, you know, like a son committing suicide because of uh, military service, like just 
things of the world have infiltrated Twin Peaks in a way that was different or felt different before. So the other thing I wanted, the other point I wanted to make earlier that will at least get us to some of the various things in this episode that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, but I think it at least addresses interestingly Matt's question about like, is this show sort of only interested in undoing the previous show or like, how is it doing that? For me, one thing that was so fascinating about this particular episode is like the emphasis on on repetition, the emphasis on the ways in which um, aspects, not even aspects, some aspects, but then also actual things are repeated from the old show and from Twin P and from Fire Walk with Me. So, like the examples here include the famous streetlight shot from the original Twin Peaks. Right, we have the streetlight comes back again, just sort of out of nowhere, like for no reason, which is perfect. Um, we have the character of Heidi who is the German woman who works in the diner with the like super memorable giggle and if people don't remember Heidi appeared in the pilot and then in the finale Lynch brings her back and has her repeat word for word seed for scene the scene from the pilot with Shelley so she's already repeated she's already like a repeater Heidi and then in this new one she's not repeating the dialogue but the giggle and everything is, is so similar like it's a blast from the past right this woman um, we have, as Simon mentioned, the intersection from Fire Walk With Me makes an appearance here, and more than that, there is a direct reference to a shot of Fire Walk With Me when Lynch shows the telephone pole with the number six on it, and it pans up. That's right out of Fire Walk With Me. Uh, and then finally, in my favorite, because I feel like I'm one of the only internet nerds that figured this out. Like, I feel like I never figure out the stuff that everybody else figures out, but I feel like I figured this one out. The scene, uh, Simon knows what I'm talking about, the scene with the, um drug addicted mother in the housing development when we hear her in this one say 119 119 and now the cops are on the roof um and of course she's saying 911 backwards but the cops are on the roof that is the exact scene that we see uh in episode three it's the exact same footage it's just been edited slightly differently so like this show is repeating itself I don't know. That, that's obviously a little different than the question of it of it repeating and calling back to these signifiers of the old show. But I don't know. I, for me, there is this interesting tension here of like maybe it's a different approach than what Matt is getting at with this like emptying out of the old show. But here, it's almost like there's a sense in which, despite how different things are, it's it's like stuck in a rut or something. Like it can't get out of these things or something. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, my question would be like how how much do those kind of small details contribute to the show actually evoking the, the feel and, and look of the old Twin Peaks at all. You know, um, my feeling is that they don't. But I, I am super taken by the idea that somehow that Twin Peaks can no longer exist in, and there is this sort of vague socialist current going through with uh, Dr. Jacoby and his... Um, his weird i guess it a, i guess it's not a podcast would you call that a socialist right right it's kind of quasi and then then it turns out to be but it seems like there there is a sort of critique if not yeah. if not a neo neoliberalism than just how like everything is you know yes. and naomi watts kind of brings this up as well yeah no, but i am taken by that, that that somehow twin peaks can't can't exist the way it used to and then maybe lynch is not totally unconscious of that i accept yeah. that completely yeah. I actually really love the way you framed Matt this season as, you know, if the if the mystery of the original show was who killed Laura Palmer and then following that like I guess w the Windermere stuff, um then the mystery of this show is what is this show? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I actually kind of love that. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, isn't that clearly kind of kind of what it's doing? I mean, doesn't there 
seems something almost disingenuous. I mean, for me, again, the most every time I go to watch it and that credit sequence comes on, I feel like something so subversive is happening because it, it's setting up like we're about to watch season three as though it would follow off correctly from season two. And then we get whatever this is. And it seems to me just like the, like the most provocative thing to do, to call the show Twin Peaks, to have this very traditional credit sequence and then give us the show that we get. Yeah. And I love, I love that about it. What about those credit sequences and, and the way the roadhouse has been turned into this sort of like hipster bar from Portland that has like glass candy playing at it? You know, I mean, the, the thing about like Julie Cruz is almost that like she was unintentionally cool. And now you have these bands that are like explicitly cool. And, you know, and, and, more, and more expressly cool people are going to come on the show based on the credits, you know, the what we know of the cast. Um, okay, first of all, we didn't have glass candy. We had chromatics. Get your Italians, do it better straight. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I did know the, that. Uh, second of all, um, actually, I have a lot to say about this. First of all, I love Sharon Van Etten. Um, I think as much as I was, like, apprehensive about this notion of these, you know, musical sequence credit sequences coming back and... I gather, like, based on the rhythm we're getting so far, it's probably going to happen in, like, three out of five episodes. I did think it was interesting that I, I accidentally watched the that last bit of the episode with subtitles on, and she's constantly singing about the number seven, and so there's, like, more numerology coming in, and I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, were we supposed to be drawing parallels between the songs and the content this entire time? Because I haven't been doing that. It made me wonder if I've been paying strict enough attention. But I also think that the way that the roadhouse has turned it, and this is sort of something we've touched on before, like I, I find the, the sort of gentrification of the roadhouse is kind of an interesting yeah. idea. I'm not sure I'm going to love it always as a trope because it's like, a, it doesn't, I'm not sure it entirely works if you're making the claim that, and this is a claim that I have made and I, I think I believe it, which is this idea that um, turning it into this sort of hipster Portland bar is very much of a piece with this whole move towards the town not really being that special or that unusual and it, and it being much more kind of open to the world in a, in a different way. And I think that makes total sense. But then the problem is, is like if there's one at the end of every episode and the show is so clearly, and this is true, like they're going to be marketing a Twin Peaks like album that it, that for me is like a little less interesting. And like, I'm, I'm all for the show making money, especially because as we're kind of going forward, it's maybe becoming clear that like the, the ratings for this are not going to be insane. I don't think that matters. I think I cultural capital why. is what, well, exactly. Um, cultural capital is what Showtime was after anyway, and it's what they've gotten. And the show will have many, many people watching it years going forward, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, I'm fine with them making money off of the music. I'm like, that's fine. But it just sometimes for me, it's like having it at the end of every episode as like a necessary thing sometimes drains some of the interest out of it as a formal element. But but maybe not. We'll we'll see how it keeps going. So on a purely like time management level, like especially I think this week more than any other episode when we get to like the 55 minute mark and the song starts playing i'm like god damn it we're not going to get any more plot in these last three minutes we're just going to get sharon van etten like ah because you know we've had and this is we we must talk about this now two episodes ago i believe we had um we had either lynch or ferrer i forget who's saying well i know where she drinks in reference to the one person who will will uh know potentially where to what the deal is with with uh with cooper um, and then two episodes later, we get Ferrer um, hilariously um, tracking down Diane, uh, who we realize is played by Laura Dern. And I just want to quickly, like, 
who knows where they're going to go with this, obviously. But um, Laura Dern as Diane was one of, along with Michael Sarah as Lucy and Andy's son, was like the most widely predicted uh, bit of casting. And I have to say that the while the Michael Sarah thing, to my mind, ended up as like hilarious and totally apropos. I, I at this particular moment, and I stand to be, I stand, I hoping to be corrected later. I'm really apprehensive about casting Laura Dern as Cooper's secretary. If the notion that that for the rest of the show we're gonna have like Krista Bell in this, you know, F, this like authoritative FBI agent role, and then Laura Dern in this like secret, not not that there's anything wrong with secretaries or what they do. It's just like I, it's just not the. It's not the role I, I had envisioned for, for Laura Dern, I guess, in terms of import. But, you know, obviously, this it's extremely, extremely early days. Yeah, I the stuff with Diane, like I, Simon and I, I think we maybe even said this. I, in, fact, if, in fact, I'm 100% positive I said on the podcast, please no Laura Dern as Diane. In fact, please no Diane at all. Like, I, I just... It was inevitably disappointing that they chose to sort of turn what was basically just a great joke into a character. I'm, I'm not sure it needs to exist. Like, it is, it is one of those things where, for me, I'm never a big fan of, like, giving fans exactly what they want. And I'm speaking as a fan. And I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't really want to meet Diane. I wanted Diane to be this sort of, like, ineffable mystery person. That being so said... So they didn't if, give you what you wanted. So that's good. Yeah. I guess exactly right. Um, so if if anything, I don't know. For me, that feels more like uh, when Damon Lindelof has some mouthpiece in the last season of Lost, being like, "This was what the smoke monster was all along." That that to me is like the equivalent of giving Diane as a character. Like it, it just doesn't feel very graceful. But that being said, if anybody uh, can make it work, Laura Dern can make it work, and David Lynch can make it work because they are like amazing together. So I, I am also very willing to be convinced. And I, and I will say again, even watching it a second time, it doesn't bother me as much. Like now that I know that it's coming, it, it doesn't bother me as much. And again, while I haven't read it, I believe that the the book that came out the same summer as The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, The Secret Diary of Agent Cooper or whatever it's called, sort of talks about the character of Diane in it. And like, I don't think she is played as a sort of straightforward secretary character. She seems to be more of a, as a sort of like international woman of mystery or something who just happens to take Cooper's dictaphone notes for reasons I don't understand. But we'll see how that goes. I mean, I, I mostly am just will be thrilled if she's a main character rather than Christabel. That that would just be my hope anyway. So, yes. I mean, I, I think that my perception of Diane is like hopelessly colored by that awful scene in The Missing Pieces yeah. where she's only off screen and is like clearly strictly subservient to Cooper. Um, oh, that's which, true. Hey, yeah. Yeah. So mm, I, that that was that's always been like my least favorite, like one of my least favorite Lynch directed like Twin Peaks associated things ever. Um, what else in this? I mean, we, we still haven't really directly discussed Dougie and yeah. his sort of contribution to this episode and, and the, and the effect of, of continuing on with him. And I, I wanted to mention something that, uh, again, I shout out to ILX for someone pointing this out. Um, one aspect of Dougie that I, that really hadn't occurred to me is the fact of Cooper being stuck in the black lodge for all this time this, you know, this 25 year span and visibly aging and not really getting to live a life. And meanwhile, you know, this Dougie figure who seems to have been built or constructed 
um, sort of he's not he's like not a not quite a real person and with not quite a real life um, has sort of existed in his place and and gotten to have some kind of life and then to have Cooper sort of assume this position and sort of return to the world but not really and to sort of see you know to to meet you know his to meet Janie E and his and and her there slash her son or whoever it is you want to put that. And to have these very um, overtly emotional reactions to that while also being like basically incapacitated. There is like a weird sort of pathos to to all that Cooper lost in in comparison to this not quite person. And also the fact that this not quite person just has is ripped out of his life as well. Like the show yeah. hasn't made a point of commenting on it directly so much. But um, that's sort of an angle that I hadn't really considered. And it has added a certain weight to those sequences. For me, the sequence where Cooper starts crying over the little boy uh, very much, for me, felt like the show trying to draw our attention to that. This idea that um, this little boy effectively doesn't have a father anymore. You know, like, the, the audience is so... We're all sitting there... Like, I mean, a lot of the audience is rooting for Cooper to sort of wake up and, and run away, right? Like, run back to Twin Peaks, run back to the FBI. And for me, it's like this idea that that we're rooting for this guy to leave this family, like to leave Naomi Watts and to leave the son. That's like a, there's some ishiness there that like, I think the show is, is trying to kind of draw our attention to. Um, for, for me, the reason why I, I really like the Dougie stuff, I, I'm not in any rush to see it go away, is like, A, I just find a lot of it very funny. But I, I find a lot of it to be like the space where the emotional weight of, of the show, the original run of the show, is, is now residing, right? I mean, these moments of like, like, for example, the look on... McLaughlin's face when he discovers the clapper and he's like clapping the light on and off with his son and like just the pure joy on his face it's not coming to us in the same way that it used to come to us when Cooper was this very slick like kind of in charge of everything sort of guy but but the affect is the same it's like this continuation of a character who we love because he has just such like pure he he can access such pure kind of innocent love of the world i mean that that is still there and I, like i i actually find that quite interesting and quite affecting in those scenes yeah no i i, I agree with that as well <laughs> it's weird it's like it's like the the cinematic world of the child ostensibly yeah right um which can be interesting what do people feel like is going on in these episodes with um for lack of a better term, something like the stereotype of the useless male, like this idea that there there is something going on there with with Janie E as this um, not quite jokey but almost jokey figure of like the the domestic sort of mother. Um, who who just continually is sort of saying to her husband like you do this thing and then he just doesn't do it and then she just does it for him and like this. It makes me think of um. It makes you think of like. A combination of the man child, like this, you know, the 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 eternal adolescent, you know, personified by like Seth Rogen characters, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Meets like the schlub husband of like, let's say, Family Guy or um Last Man Standing. Or I guess that's probably not a great example, but you know, like oh, they, that Kevin James one, um yeah. with, po- with with poor Aaron, what's her name from Children's Hospital, King, King who of, just quit. King of Queens. Not not King of Queens. The one that came afterwards doesn't matter. Kevin can Does wait. It's all the same show. All yeah, the same. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, like, oh, you. <laughs> um, yeah, those tropes are definitely there. 
I love that no matter what he appears in, Jeremy Davies is always just Jeremy Davies. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of the through line between this and Lost and Justified. <laughs> I love Jeremy Davies. He's great. Uh, he can do no wrong. Um, so, okay, we, we should talk about that scene because there's some good stuff in that scene. But I just wanted to add on to what you were saying there, Simon, because I'd never really thought about this in relation to these scenes, but it makes total sense. Like, this idea that, that the sitcom is maybe, like, also here as a kind of televisual structuring device. I hadn't thought about that, but it makes total sense to me. It, it also goes some way towards explaining this idea that uh, Naomi Watts is married to this character of Dougie, who... Like, we're supposed to look at, at the real Dougie, not Nuku, but we're supposed to look at the real Dougie and be like, why on earth would Naomi Watts be married to this guy? Like, not only is he continually sort of cheating on her with women and, like, gambling, he looks like a maroon. Like, the guy the guy is just, like, a goober, right? And, and you were like, why would Naomi Watts be with him? And it, so there's very clearly this, like reference to those sorts of shows where it makes no sense that these like gorgeous women are dealing with these moronic men all the time anyway so that, that's interesting there's also a fun like connection there to uh lynch's rabbits with that's his, exactly like, what i was about yeah. to say yeah yes it's also funny that that cooper as dougie you know doesn't really seem to be that different than the previous dougie so yeah. she's not she's like oh that's just that's just dougie for you you know that this guy is <laughs> yeah. ostensibly lobotomized and you know has no idea where he is it's like well that's what you can expect from like my you know, coke-laden husband who's going out with, like, yeah. prostitutes in <laughs> Vegas. Like, this this new Dougie who, you know, is ostensibly... I don't, like, we don't know what's wrong with Coop. Does he have amnesia? Is he brain-damaged? But he's not that different than this other Dougie. I, I would say, for my, for my money, one of the better scenes, and we haven't talked about it yet in this, in this episode, is... Uh, Balthasar Getty talking to, yeah, Richard uh, Horn there. Like, that's there's some good stuff in that sequence. Balthasar Getty looks so different now. He's kind of like, I didn't even recognize him at first. And, like, I, I hope he has some sort of solid role on this, that he's not just, like, that's not it, that one scene. My, like, response when Balthasar Getty turned up at the end of the pilot there was, or the end of the premiere was, when did Balthazar Getty become, like, a good-looking guy? Like, my, my recollection of Balthazar Getty was that he was this, like, really annoying goober in Lost Highway. And, and he was also in, like, an adaptation of Lord of the Flies when he was very young. But um, he, he never, he certainly never had, like, a presence like that. Now, all of a sudden, he's this, like, like cutting, cutting this figure through the room. I mean, it's kind of impressive. Um, also, for anybody who wants a fun read, look up Balthazar Getty's father's Wikipedia page. Like, look up Balthazar Getty and then read about his father, who is this, like, third, like, the grandchild of a massive Italian industrialist and who was kidnapped, and, like, it's all very crazy. Yes, Balthazar Getty had a very strange, like, upbringing situation. So anyway, this is all fascinating. Go check it out. Um, but I, for me, I, one of the things I loved about that sequence with, with Balthazar Getty is, like, these these kind of subtle callbacks to things like um, like Lynch's fascination with like the magician figure, you know, like in Twin Peaks, it's the line like the magician longs to see. But in things like Mulholland Drive uh, or Inland Empire, this idea of like the evil magician, like the, the person who can kind of bend reality is this like scary, terrifying figure. And here it's all done with this very subtle, very odd thing with the coin toss trick, which was which was one of Lynch's better like fake outs, like cinematic fake outs. I really like that sequence. Mm-hmm. that's a really fun sequence um for my money i think my my favorite sequence was actually the scene between dougie and his boss um uh. where which is again it's had this very like sort of wonderful metatextual 
um, value where the boss is just is excoriating Dougie for just being like completely inscrutable and useless. And then sort of like lines up all the documents and starts looking at these staircases or squiggles or whatever the hell they are. And he gains access to this knowledge that we don't have where he's able to piece something together. And he's just like, wow, Dougie, you, you, you've certainly given me a lot to think about. <laughs> Which to me, like if that scene is to me that maybe the clearest sign of Lynch and Frost sort of like affectionately trolling the audience. Oh, also, also with Philip Gerard at the beginning, or Mike, I suppose, saying, wake up to Dougie and like getting the audience's hopes up that there's going to be some mystical kick in the pants to Dougie here. And of course there totally is it. <laughs> it's like, then we get a whole other episode of Dougie. Um, no, I, I think they're, they are pretty aware of this. And, and I, I also think it's, it, it's of a piece with Lynch's like kind of overall thing about um, giving the audience these like cheeky slash, you know, one could maybe say condescending if you don't like Lynch, uh, these like reminders to just calm down, <laughs> you know, like just chill out a little bit. Like the, this idea that the boss is given these documents that seem like total nonsense and nothing is making sense. And it's sort of from this like mind of a crazy person. And then he like sits down and pays attention to them. And then he's like, actually, there's a sense there that, that makes total sense to him, right? Like it's not, it's not open to us, but it's this sort of private sense. There is, there is something equivalent there with like the giant at the beginning of this season saying uh it can't all be said out loud now or like uh you know don't look too hard for the clues or whatever it is in the previous show you know stuff like that i I definitely think there is elements of that there in that scene i would kill if like in the 16th or 17th episode of this season of twin peaks if they replaced the theme song with iris demence let the mystery be from the leftovers (laughs) (laughs) i would enjoy that very much that would be great. And obviously uh, David Lindelof would f- himself. I still have this like knee-jerk reaction where I want to make fun of Lindelof and then I have to remember that he just pulled off the leftovers and he's great and I can't make fun of him anymore, which is too bad. I he know. used to be my go-to like TV making fun of person. Oh yeah, that, that's what I just like most about the leftovers that it deprived me of being able to just yell Lindelof at things. Well, I think we should give a shout out to the one of the better lines so far that's made me laugh very hard, which was the line from Naomi Watts in that sequence where she... Uh, yells at them uh you know we we drive cheap terrible cars we are the 99 percenters we get not enough again it's like you can't quite make sense of what's going on in that scene it's like you feel like naomi watts yelling at them is some sort of manifesto like on the one hand her her line about like we're living in a dark dark age like it's funny coming out of her mouth but it's very much of a piece with the whole episode like this idea of this sort of unmitigated violence and like nothing makes any sense and all of this stuff it's like you know she's right about that but like the rest of it 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 almost plays it for laughs, right? I mean, this idea that, like, it totally is. It's like, you're like, really? Like, this is this grand political statement? Like, it, it reads as just another iteration of what was going on with Jacoby or something. Um, anyway, but uh, I, but Matt, yeah, but do you have any, like, major other things that we haven't focused on yet here? No, I'm just looking forward to see what happens next. I really, I was... uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with what's going on, but I, um, I just am reserving judgment till the end. <laughs> I know. We, we basically say a version of that every week. I, I, I wanted to ask you, though, Matt, like, because you had mentioned this when you were on the podcast before, that you were really interested to see, like, what happened with things like technology, like if people would have cell phones and like if there would be computers and all this stuff. And I wanted to hear if you had, had any thoughts about that watching it now. I mean, the show is so completely different than what I imagined it would be like. I would have to, to rethink the whole thing. I mean, interesting. 
we are in the digital age, I guess, but we're also in like the space age. And we're also, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what the show is. I don't know why we're in Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect that either. So, I mean, yeah, I just don't know. I Maybe to sort of segue us out, could you briefly describe the show you imagined? <laughs> <laughs> I think I imagined a continuous Twin Peaks that was set in Twin Peaks with the cast of Twin Peaks uh, and variations on the same lay motifs and sort of what we almost looked like we were going to get at the beginning of the first episode. Certainly not this, uh, <laughs> but I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> um, I do, I do think that the show, I, cause it's interesting at the beginning, like Simon and I, we talked a lot about, like we were worried about, you know, like this, we imagined there being strong negative critical reaction to the show right from the get go. And like, we're kind of pleasantly surprised when there wasn't. And I, and I do feel like now we're reaching that point. Like, I feel like, you know, the, the hardcore critics are still very much in favor of the show, but I feel like the tide is turning a little bit and we're now, <laughs> we're now hitting this point where the critics are, and people are sort of like, I don't know about this. This is not what I want it to be. I'm not that pleased. And so, I, well, it'll be interesting to see like how that, how that plays out. You know, I mean, I will, will this be like fire walk with me and people are going to hate it for the next 30 years or will this be like, uh, you know, something else? I, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I, one of the things I sort of predicted, even, I think, I think before it aired, which I, I think, I think is one of the few things I've said before it aired that this turned out to be accurate, which is that like by even the end of June, like no one but the hardcore are even going to be watching or paying attention, um, which is really how I prefer it anyway. Like the whole zeitgeist, uh, you know, trying to get hack and hack back into the zeitgeist, have this big cultural conversation about it. It was never going to happen in the way that, yeah, I mean, I just, I sent a clip to you, uh, Kate, this incredible nine minute uh, clip from, I think, uh, was it ABC News of um, people talking about the season one finale and how outraged they were that there was no, um, that there was no resolution to the murder complete with like these incredible parody sequences of the stylistic ticks and shots of inanimate objects that don't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> like that. It was, I, I can't believe I hadn't already seen that. Like the 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 age of the age of, of a show like this, like capturing the zeitgeist in that way is over. Um, the closest anyone is going to get actually was True Detective season one. Um, like that's the closest anyone's going to get for a while, I assume. Um, so I'm perfectly happy for it to be this much more marginal consideration, cons consigned to this much more this much smaller corner of the internet where like. Frankly, like I've I've been having a blast just like reading other Twin Peaks nerds like notice these very small details that like and actually I didn't get to bring this up earlier so I'm going to bring it up now it's going to be the actual last thing. There's this fascinating mix to me of totally inscrutable elements and quite scrutable elements. The fact that we get like a very distinct and legible resolution to the plot beat of um of Hawk and his heritage and how that's going to relate to what he needs to find out, which, as it turns out, is literally just, you know, this Indian company logo on the bottom of a bathroom stall leading him to what looks like missing pages from the secret diary. Um, it's it's hard to be totally sure now. But, like, the fact that, and this is maybe something I mentioned before, Frost specifically, I guess, um, throwing in just enough legibility, just enough specific plot resolution to make you think that there is a design within the madness 
Um, I think that's some, that's maybe the most consistent thread between this and the original. Mm, yeah. That, that Nez Perce uh, uh, company or whatever it's called too is a direct reference to the secret history of Twin Peaks. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff about the... Oh, God, I'm going to embarrass myself if it's a person or a place. Anyway, this is I'm not American, so I, I forget the details of some of that stuff. But there's, uh, there's a lot about it in Twin Peaks, the secret history. Um, yeah, anyway. So, yeah, we hadn't mentioned that scene, I suppose. So there was, there was some narrative movement there. But um, I, I will admit, like, I, I don't want to say that I'm separate from everybody else in the sense of, like, I could just watch Dougie forever. This episode, I, I did, I was personally feeling the lack of people like um, Audrey and Bobby and stuff. I was like, we have, and the Haywards even. Like, there's so many people sort of waiting in the wings that I... I would love to see them back a little bit more. So that for me was like, I was starting to feel that a little bit by this episode. Monica Bellucci is playing Donna. I'm telling you. I totally forgot Monica Bellucci was going to be in this. Holy crap. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. Ah! I feel like I feel like if I had had any memory of Bolucci doing an American accent, I, I would be able to imagine that better. But like now all I can imagine is like a French Donna. Which She's been abroad. Okay. Work. Um, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see going forward if we really end up in any scenario in which there is characters from the original show who aren't Coop and Hawk, I guess, who have more of a kind of ongoing role on the show. Like, I, I'm, I'm totally putting this out there right now. I really want Bobby to be, like, a main character. I want him to come back. I do think that, I do think that Audrey is going to be uh, a fairly large character when she comes back as well. But um, it's, it's surprising up to this point, like, how, how little, actually, there has been with some of those people. And for certainly for some of them, I totally understand. Like, James, we don't need a ton of James. But some of them are such great actors. Like, where is Grace Zabriskie? Oh, my God. I want Grace Zabriskie back too, you know? So we'll see. I mean, luckily they keep killing off all the new people. So (laughs) it's true. Anyway, I want to thank you both. Um, You can find Kate on Twitter at cinnamon. That's C I N E M E N T. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at hollow minds spelled like it sounds. Uh, Matt, are you on the interwebs anywhere? Anywhere? Uh, I have a Twitter. I should use it. So it's, I think it's just my name. It's just a, Matt Dockrooms, I think. I never use it. So but I'm there. I'm on the internet. You can you can find me. Fantastic. If you wanna if you wanna lob complaints specifically at Matt, please do it at his please. Twitter account <laughs> yeah. and not mine or Kate's. We have enough <laughs> stuff clogging up our mentions related to Twin Peaks right now. Lovingly clogging up our mentions. Um, <laughs> so uh yeah, as I said before, please rate, review, etc. the show on iTunes or whatever if you are enjoying it. It helps us to stand out, as you may or may not have noticed. The Twin Peaks podcast verse is an even more crowded field with the new episodes, so anything that helps us stand out, especially reviews, reviews are great. Um, unless you're going to give us a bad review, in which case I suggest you go for a walk and take a think about your life <laughs> and maybe do something else with your time. And uh, that's it. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, Kate. And we will we'll be back in roughly a week's time. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worrying about where they're gonna go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain and so it's all the same to me. Think out just. Be. Some 